Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. So thank you, those of you who are joining us today for the I Believe podcast. I am your host, Danae Peterson, and uh, I am a fellow ocular melanoma patient like you, and I love doing this podcast. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this with your friends, with your doctors. Um, We really appreciate it. Just a couple of quick housekeeping announcements. Um, We do have on YouTube, on our YouTube channel at the moment and coming soon to the podcast, we have all of our I Believe 2023 recordings up through um, day two, track one. And then we're working on uploading track two probably today, tomorrow. Um, So just heads up, those recordings are now up there in full. There was some weird glitch and I had to pull some of the recordings down and put them back up. So they're up now. They are correct. They are full, um, full length. And you can listen to all of these sessions we had from, I believe, uh, we had some really amazing doctors and uh, speakers those, those weekends. So, so thank you. Those of you who, who came and supported and for anyone who's listening to the recordings, um, we have a couple of walks coming up and one of them is going to be in the area where our guest speaker is from, uh, in the Los Angeles, Santa Monica area. That one's coming up on November 11th. And then we have the next one after that is Scottsdale, Arizona, where I'm at with my doctor, Dr. Justin Moser, and that's going to be on November 19th. If you want to find more of the races that we have going on, those are going to be found at lookingforacure.org. And you can find a race near you. You can create a fundraiser and just help us raise funds. uh, And you can also um, just donate directly. So thank you guys for listening. And without further ado, I will go ahead and introduce our speaker today. Um, So our speaker today, and I guess who I'm going to be having a discussion with is Dr. Jessie Berry. And she is from um, Los Angeles at USC. And I am so glad to have you here with us, Dr. Berry. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure. And we did the race last year. It's a lot of fun. So I definitely yes, so support So tell all it. people, come. <laughs> yes. It's a, great, it's a great event. All right. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? And how can patients find you if they're seeking out um, a doctor in that area? Sure. Absolutely. So I'm the director of ocular oncology at um, USC, University of um, Southern California, and also Children's Hospital Los Angeles. I treat adults and children. Um, My adult practice uh, has a focus on ocular melanoma, although I also treat some anterior segment tumors um, and a few other things on the inside of the eye. I don't tend to do um, big orbital uh, cases. And then, like I said, I also treat children um, over at CHLA. And my research focuses on um, use of a liquid biopsy approach for ocular tumors. So I love what I do. I did my um, initial year of ophthalmology training at Sloan Kettering, really fell in love with ocular oncology um, and did all my training out here in state. So I've been in practice now for over 10 years. I think we're nearing 15. 
Well, I'm like kind of cracking up because as you're talking, my natural question was, okay, so how did you find ocular oncology? Like my mom was, my mom was actually asking this question. She's like, how do doctors find this field? It's such a rare thing for you to get ocular melanoma or even retinoblastoma. Um, yes. How do people find this as a, as a profession? So how was that for you? Yeah. I mean, you're right. It tends to be rare. And I would also say um, it doesn't, necessarily go along with the personality of most ophthalmologists. Um, and people generally have chosen ophthalmology first. So, you know, people go into ophthalmology because they want to restore sight. Um, they like to deal with chronic um, long-term diseases more than acute situations. You know, most ophthalmologists, not all, but most ophthalmologists aren't um, dealing with things that are life-threatening. And so, you know, it's actually a really great field. You do surgeries, you make people really happy, um, a lot of site restoration, as I said. For me, uh, I loved that piece of ophthalmology. The eye is a beautiful organ. I loved operating on it. And then during my internship in New York at Sloan Kettering, I was exposed to ocular oncology with Dr. David Abramson, um, who he also has a focus of retinoblastoma, but does melanoma um, as well in a lot of adult patients. And I was really wowed by it. I thought it was amazing to just look into the eye, look into an organ, diagnose cancer, watch it regress with therapy. And I thought it was such a special and really impactful relationship that you forge with your patients during this time. So I was sold on it pretty early. No, that makes sense. I love it. Um, okay. So what was like the very first time, you know, either in fellowship or I guess it would it be fellowship in the medical field, like as far as where it would go, like when you came across someone who actually had ocular melanoma. So usually you're right. It would be fellowship. Although for me, it was actually my first year as a resident. And again, I knew I was interested in ocular oncology. I had a patient who, um, I followed for years and years and years who actually presented to the emergency room with a Bell's palsy, which usually is a post viral or sometimes even a stress related disorder where you lose control of one side of your face. And they wanted ophthalmology to take a look because there was some difficulty closing the eyelid. And it was during that exam, um, you know, the patient really wasn't complaining about anything else, but that we noticed that there was a large melanoma in the back of the eye. I was very concerned that maybe that meant that there was metastatic disease or disease outside the eye and the Bell's palsy was somehow linked to that. But it, it seems that that is not the case now having followed him for a very long time. But he was my first patient. And, you know, I was pretty young in my career to be um, discussing this with him. But thankfully, I had a lot of support from mentors and we were able to get him to treatment uh, very quickly and save his eye. That's incredible. Um, that's mind blowing too. And I'm sure like, like you said, like my first question was, was, is it connected? Like was the Bell's palsy somehow connected to the cancer? But, but it sounds like it was more of just a, they happen to happen at the same time or be found at the same time, um, right. which was obviously good for him in that, in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's just chat a little bit about like, as you know, as an ophthalmologist, as an ocular oncologist, what is your opinion around yearly eye exams and why they're important for the general public? Not just, you yeah. know, obviously us who have cancer, we go every three to six months sometimes, but, but That's for right. everyone else. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. I, you know, on Instagram, whenever I post anything, it's one of my number one recommendations for the population. 
It's an easy thing to do. And I always caveat that it should be a dilated um, ophthalmic exam by somebody who, you know, puts on this little piece of head equipment and uses a lens to look all the way around the retina and the back of the eye. Not only for ocular cancer, but there are many eye-associated uh, diseases and diseases that can cause vision loss that are picked up in these routine exams. But as it relates to ocular cancer, I would say 90% of my patients, the vast majority of them, were having no or very minimal symptoms when they were diagnosed. Particularly in the case if the tumor is growing near the front of the eye, it can get very large before it causes any symptoms at all, and it can be missed. My goodness, yeah. No, I know how that goes. Um, so let's just kind of chat a little bit about, you know, maybe are there are there any studies? Because I know this is this is something that comes up in the population a lot is that question of, oh, well, if I had gone in sooner, would things look different? So to date, do you know of any studies that indicate a better prognosis for ocular melanoma patients when the ocular melanoma tumor is found earlier than when symptoms start to affect the eye? Yeah. I mean, it's a very difficult thing and it's a very difficult thing to study, particularly because the only patients that we really follow without treatment are those that have these small, what we call indeterminate lesions, where we're not entirely sure if it's a high-risk EBIS or if it's a small uh, choroidal melanoma. So, you know, with the larger tumors, we're not really watching this. It's correct that a smaller tumor is somewhat easier to treat. And it's also correct that a smaller tumor is more likely um, to be type one um, or less likely to, you know, to lead to metastatic disease than a larger tumor, but it is not 100% at all. Uh, and so it's really important to understand that um, though kind of what if game really, I think just puts a lot of taxation on my patients and for my pediatric patients, it puts a lot of stress on their parents and it's not helpful or useful. I've had lots of very small tumors um, be aggressive and present later with metastatic disease, even though they were small. The other thing is many people ask about vision loss and, oh, if my tumor had been found earlier, I wouldn't have vision loss. The truth of the matter is, is that most of the small tumors are detected because they're straight back in the eye. And when the small tumor is straight back in the eye, it's right next to critical structures, your optic nerve and your phobia. So honestly, it doesn't really matter how small it is. To kill the tumor, I have to radiate those structures and radiating those structures will lead to vision loss. So we all in ocular oncology want a perfect world where we save 100% of patients, 100% of eyes and 100% of vision and we're not there yet. Um, it's still a cancer and it still has risks to the patient and risks to their vision, regardless of size or treatment. I feel like that's such a good explanation. Thank you so much. Um, so how could patients who are diagnosed at later times, like, you know, like when the tumor is much larger or more aggressive, it's causing those symptoms, how can they use this information, you know, instead of in that what if game, um, how would you suggest that, you know, that they use that information to help promote awareness, maybe in like an empowering way? Yeah. So two things. One, I think when the tumors are a little bit larger, it makes everyone quite sure what we're dealing with. And so there's far less anxiety. There's far less should we watch this? Should we wait and see that you have with some of the smaller tumors? 
there's something kind of nice about that. There's something nice about getting a diagnosis, knowing what the next steps are and moving to treatment versus sitting on something for a really long time and then saying, oh, wow, shoot, we shouldn't have sat on this Um, because there's a lot of what ifs in that situation as well. So again, some solace in that. You got your diagnosis. We knew what to do. It also allows you, as you said, to spread awareness, to talk to people about how most patients with ocular cancer are picked up during a routine exam, to go get checked, to go be followed, um, and to be connected as much as you possibly can with this community of, of what is still a quite rare disease. I feel like that's a really powerful way to think about it. Um, and and honestly, like that's kind of something that I had never really thought about too. Like just that idea that when, when you are diagnosed and, you know, it's obviously it's not fun to get diagnosed with a larger tumor or, you know, with something that is much more solidly known to be ocular melanoma, but at least there's that level of, you don't have to go and wait for six months and be followed or watched for years before they can determine exactly what is going on in your eye. Um, there's that, that level of like, okay, we know exactly what this is because this is, this is showing up quite clear. Yeah, it's quite clear. And I've had a lot of patients, whether they were followed by me or followed by someone else. And then suddenly it's, it kind of started to grow, have a lot of what ifs in terms of, is there something I could have done earlier? And, we are all working on this, but these small tumors that have some high risk features, but not all can still be very hard to diagnose. And again, they are almost always next to critical structures in the eye. So if we could yeah. just fry that thing with radiation and not cause any vision loss, well, we, we would all do that. Yeah, um, but sure. we only want to cause vision loss in a patient if we're doing it to kill a cancer and save their life. Then it's no, worth that's, the trade-off. That's such a good point too. And it's, I mean, it always comes back to, like, I, I guess what I have to think about too is, is that idea in medicine that like the ultimate kind of underlying theme of medicine is do no harm. Like you want to make sure that you, whatever you have to do, that if it is going to cause harm to the patient, that it's necessary harm. Um, you know, like, like treating cancer is yes. a necessary harm. Um, so this, this kind of feels like maybe a good natural segue to chat a little bit about, um, if you can, if you can't, and you just say you can't, um, but can you chat a little about any of the research that you're doing on those, those aqueous, um, is that what it's called? The aqueous, aqueous, uh, yeah. The aqueous um, yeah, the aqueous biopsies. So can yeah. you just maybe explain what would that be for someone? Sure. And how would that be beneficial in the in this realm of you know what do we do do we do we watch do we wait? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm really hoping that it will will play a role there. So, um, you know, there's I still have patients say like, well, how can you not be a hundred percent sure? And we don't have a perfect test to be a hundred percent sure. So, I'm not sure the aqueous will be that perfect one hundred percent test, but I'm hoping it'll give more information for clinicians to make a diagnosis. So, what's the aqueous? Well, you and I are staring at each other through the aqueous. So, if you look at the colored part of your eye, in front of it is a clear structure, and there's actually a space. You can actually kind of see it on that <laughs> picture back there on the wall, but there's a space between the actual front of your eye and the colored part of part of your eye, and there's fluid in there. And that clear fluid is called the aqueous humor. And um, our laboratory and now others around the country have joined us in evaluating that as what we call a liquid biopsy. 
So what's a liquid biopsy? It is exactly like what it sounds. Instead of taking a piece of tumor, which is what a biopsy is, you take liquid um, near or adjacent the tumor. Um, in this case, this is an organ-specific liquid biopsy, and you aim to find information about the tumor in there. And so we've published on this pretty extensively for retinoblastoma and now also for uveal melanoma, looking at DNA. Those are the building blocks of the cell. Um, but then recently we actually looked at proteins. So proteins are sort of like, if you think of DNA as the letters um, in the alphabet, proteins are the words that are kind of put together and you put, put out words and those words then make sentences and have meaning. And so looking at the protein signature and the aqueous has been really exciting um, because even in small tumors where we can't do a tumor biopsy, we're finding enough protein in the aqueous to get some information and some signal. And so I imagine a world in the future where if you have a lesion in the back of the eye and the doctor's not sure, um, instead of just watching, you would take, a, again, a little pea-sized amount of aqueous. In an adult, you can do that at the slit lamp while you're at the doctor. It takes about 30 seconds. And we would study that fluid to see if we're seeing some high-risk markers that suggest it is actually a melanoma. So I'm very hopeful that this is really going to have a an impact on patients. It's going to make these decisions easier. It's going to make their, um, they're going to feel better about treatment um, with this information. So it's a work in progress. It's not ready for clinical use yet. We're still in the laboratory, but we are working on it. Oh, I think that's so powerful. And I feel like that will be, I mean, when it, when it is in, you know, actual practice of ocular oncology offices, I feel like that will make such a huge difference um, for the trajectory yeah. of patients. And like you said, just for that providing of reassurance instead of this, um, maybe it won't completely eliminate the watch and wait, but it will hopefully shorten it or just yeah. make it a little bit more um, bearable, I guess we yeah. could say, because there won't be this lack of information. So I love Correct. that. And, you know, you mentioned that ocular oncologists are a rare breed as well, right? There's maybe like 50 of us in the U.S. or so, um, but not every state has one. And so, you know, um, again, we are not there yet, but you could imagine a time where if a patient didn't have access to an ocular oncologist or has to drive six, seven, eight hours, like many do to see me, that instead their local eye doctor could take this fluid, an eye doctor can do this, it's a very simple procedure, and test it. And then if it's high risk, send to me. And if it's low risk, maybe continue to watch. So um, again, that that's a future state, but it's a it's a state that I think in in my my lifetime, your lifetime, we're going to get there. No, I love that, and I think that I think that would be really neat to see, especially like on that kind of um, entry level, you know, eye exam of the ophthalmologist, like where they're where they're able to then use that information as part of whether or not they send someone in for an ocular oncology consult. Um, right. So let's talk a little bit about eye exams themselves. What, in your opinion, you kind of talked a little about this before, but let's just kind of go, let's expand on the idea of what is a dilated eye exam and um, what makes a good eye exam, in your opinion, just for, for just basic eye health? Yeah. So I think, again, dilation, dilation, dilation. I think it's so important. Um, patients hate being dilated because um, it blurs your vision. It's a stingy drop. It lasts several hours. They can't go right back to work. Um the older you get, the worse it is. I know for me, um, I used to be able to kind of work through it and now I'm really blurry for a while. 
often you can't even drive because you're, you're just blurry. So I get that people hate it, but it really is so important. Um, and I would say if you absolutely cannot have that done, then you should um, pay. It's usually an out-of-pocket payment for a picture of the back of the eye and make very sure that they've captured very well all four quadrants um, all the way out to the aura. Um, again, I've had patients come in and say to me, but I did have an exam every year. Like I did have an exam and my vision was always 20-20 and I got my glasses prescription. And then when I really asked them, like, you know, you don't have to be dilated. There's no law. Did they put drops in your eye? Did they put this little um, headpiece on? Did you did you see them use a lens on the eye? They say, oh, no, that never happened. Um, and so, again, they had this big tumor growing out in the side of the eye. Their vision was perfect. They had no symptoms. And if you looked just straight back in the eye, you missed it. And so, um, again, because there's no requirement to dilate a patient, it's not something that you must do. And because many patients don't want to do it, you'll miss things in, in those scenarios. So no, I know the drops aren't fun, but I recommend them. No, I mean, they're, you know, they're not fun, but, um, so dilation, like just, let's just talk about how dilation works and mm -hmm. what's the difference between maybe the technology or the, the the way that dilation works versus like the wide filled retina imaging that um, yep. could also be done. So yep. I guess let's chat dilation first. What does dilation do like on a base level? Yeah. So dilation basically opens your pupil up. That's the basic way to think about it um, and kind of paralyzes the muscle that helps you kind of constrict your pupil to, to see better. And so, and again, that can last hours generally uh, before it wears off. But when you open the pupil up, it allows the um, eye doctor, the ophthalmologist or the optometrist who's looking at you to see far clearer and far better and far further out to the periphery. So instead of looking through a one or two millimeter you know, slot with an undilated pupil, now you're looking through six, eight or more um, millimeters. And it's truly how you can see well out into the periphery of the eye without that. I mean, I could miss a tumor, right? I mean, anyone could because you're, you're just not seeing well. You're not optimizing the exam for a peripheral view. Okay. So it's kind of like, like basically just taking it from a very narrow window to opening it up. Correct. Correct. Like if I gave you a straw and I said, go look through that window and tell me what you see. Well, I mean, you'd see something, right? But I mean, truly try to look through a straw sometime. And that's what's happening. If you don't dilate the pupil, you're looking through a straw versus opening everything up. You can look all the way around. You have much further range. You just see far better. So is the dilated eye exam limited in like, I mean, I guess you've got the diagram of the eye behind you, but like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've learned more about the eye in the sense that it's, you know, it's, it's a globe, like it's a full sphere. And yep. so, you know, when you're looking from the front of it into the back, is there limits to what the dilation can see? And do you know of ways around that, I guess? Yes, yes, yes. So there is, um, there's a structure called the ciliary body that sits kind of right behind the colored part of the eye. And that structure is very difficult to see on a routine dilate exam. So even with dilation, you still don't see that structure well. Um, you could push on the eye in order to kind of deform the globe and kind of bring it into view. Um, again, patients don't love that. It's a little bit um, it's not painful, but there's definitely pressure on the eye. And even then you sometimes don't see it. So 
if I have a patient who is at high risk or that I'm concerned about something in the ciliary body, so there's generally two situations where that happens. One is they have a dilated blood vessel on their eye that then dives into the white part of the eye. That's called a sentinel vessel. Um, when I see that, I know that I want to image the ciliary body in that area. The other thing is a, is a disorder called nevus of OTA, OTA. And you see this in, um, in patients where their eye, instead of having like a nice clear white area, has these gray plaques on them, not teensy tiny. They're usually pretty obvious. And sometimes you can have some gray or blue plaques around the eyelid um, or the other ocular tissues. This means that there's a lot of melanocytes or pigmented cells in that area. And it takes the risk of developing an ocular melanoma from something like 1 in 18,000 to 1 in 400. So a really, really high increase. It's so high that I'm that crazy person that if I like check out with someone, this happened once at the aquarium, the person checking me out had like very obvious nevus avoda. And I said, this is a little awkward, but I'm an eye doctor. I don't see anything scary, but that gray color to your eye really means that you need to have a dilated exam. Have you had a dilated exam recently? And um, my husband, of course, was like horrified that I was doing this. Um, but she said, no, I've never had a dilated exam. And I said, okay, you don't need to be scared. I don't see anything bad, but you do need a yearly dilated exam with that. And so who knows? I mean, maybe she went in, maybe she didn't. I hope she did. At least somebody now has told her because most people don't know that. You asked how you find it then. It's with an ultrasound. So you need to do an ultrasound. Um, most people have an idea of what ultrasounds are from babies, but it's like a little probe that's, that can image things deep in structures. And you can see the ciliary body very well with that. And you can detect if there's any growth or lesions. So, Okay. Um, well, that's just interesting to me. Um, so the wide-filled retina imaging, What can we talk about how that works? Like yeah. What, um, what, what does the technology accomplish? Cause I've heard it yeah. described a few different ways and I, I'm just curious your take on it. Yeah. So people will hem and haw about it. Um, I think it's probably not quite as perfect as a full dilated exam by an ophthalmologist looking at every single clock hour all the way around the eye. That being said, um, more people are willing to do it. And so if it captures more people, then I think ultimately it's good. Um, so you do not have to be dilated. Of course, it's, you see even better if you are, but you don't have to be dilated for it. And it's quite good at getting out into the periphery. And so if there was something large, most of the time it will be caught. Again, I will tell you, this happened to me last week. I had a patient who was referred in. I knew there was a tumor there, but it was anterior in the ciliary body. And on the first set of RETCAM images that came back to me, it was missed. So I had to say to my photographers, you need to have this patient look down at five o'clock in order to capture this. And then they captured it perfectly. So that patient is an example of someone who still could have been missed in a routine screening when they didn't know it was there. They would have just looked and said, everything looks normal. That being said, like, I, you know, as I keep repeating, nothing is perfect, but I think it does increase the group of patients who are screened and helps detect them. Oh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good way to explain it. Um, I've heard a few other like doctors explain it as kind of like a, okay, 
if possible, have both done just so that there's mm-hmm. like a like a written record, so to speak, of like, okay, we can track what we see as yes. opposed to, you know, me just taking, you know, the doctor just taking notes and saying, okay, I saw this in here and this in yes. here and this in here. So that yes. visual representation to track what's going on in the eye can be very powerful information. Um, yes. But like you said, if there's a huge resistance to the dilation in and of itself, having the images is better than nothing. Um, yep. But neither of them are foolproof is what I'm hearing. And neither of them, um, are as beneficial. Like an eye exam is never going to be as beneficial if you're not dilated and same yeah. with the imaging, like the imaging will be more benefited, um, or more, more likely to just capture more if you yeah. are dilated and opened up because that's Agreed. just, that, that's just how the, the muscles contract. And what is the, you just I know see the name better. of the collarette. Is that the name of the muscle? Or like the sphincter muscle in the yes, iris? Yes, the sphincter muscle. Yes. Yeah. All of those pieces yeah. that contract and make your pupil get bigger and smaller in the light and the dark. That's that, right. You know, one of mine no longer does. <laughs> yes. But it's okay. Yes. Um, They're working on so, that too for prostheses. Yeah, also, that would be Neva, awesome. Nevi patients. So, you know, I am referred a lot of Nevi patients that say, my doctor said it changed and I think it changed. And the note will even say like, you know, subtle change. Well, it's really hard for me. Remember, I'm looking at you for the first time. I don't have any comparison to what you looked like before if you don't have photos. And so also I'm going off someone's note. And most of the time someone's note says um, choroidal nevus in the periphery. Well, okay. I can't tell what has changed or not changed from that description. So um if a patient has a known choroidal nevus and you're being followed by it, I would make sure that you have pictures taken. That's a really good point. That's a very good point. Um, so as we're kind of coming to a close, I know we already talked about the aqueous, the aqueous biopsy, um, but is there any other areas of research right now that are like just particularly exciting to you right now that you would like to just chat about or just share about? Sure. Well, there's two. One, we we kind of touched on it, but you know, um, there are a lot of people that are working to make prostheses better to have um, the pupil dilate. So, you know, Danae, someone like you and I who have these um, blue eyes, you can tell the difference with the black pupil if it's small or large. You don't see it so much in someone who has dark brown eyes and a dark brown prosthesis. But um, that's a work in progress to kind of better get a sort of light adapting pupil in a prosthesis so that it looks more natural, particularly for light-eyed patients. So I'm looking forward to that for, for some of mine. Um, the other thing is, you know, we talk a lot about biopsies or liquid biopsies and finding high-risk patients. Well, what do you do with those high-risk patients? Right now, what we do with those high-risk patients is often we image them more um, intensively and more frequently. But there's, there's not like, oh, well, here's this special vitamin that will prevent this. And we're getting to the point where we're starting to look at um, what we call adjuvant treatment or adjuvant um, clinical trials, looking at whether or not if someone is high risk for metastatic disease, they could be given something that would stop the progression of that. And so um, our laboratory is looking at that actually from a liquid biopsy standpoint, um, a blood liquid biopsy standpoint. And other places are looking at it from a therapeutic um, standpoint. And some of those trials are um, kind of up and coming, going live uh, soon. So that's very exciting. No, I love that. That's that's honestly, that's probably one of the most exciting topics, I think, for, for most patients. Because yes. I think a lot of those, those people who are a class two patient, they feel a little bit like a sitting duck where yeah. you're just, you're just kind of like, okay, well, I'm here and you're telling me you can watch me, but you can't do anything. Exactly. Um, 
So that'll be very powerful to see that unfold in the future. Um, Yeah. And you know, I have patients who don't even want to biopsy because of that. They say, well, why? All you're doing is you're going to tell me it's bad and I'm going to be anxious about it. If you can't do anything with it, I don't want to biopsy. And I understand that. So again, um, I think that will change uh, in the next several years and we'll be able to do something with that information to actually help them. Yeah. Well, I just had a thought as you said that. Um, Can we chat a little bit about like, what is, what is your opinion and maybe how do you put forth the, um, like specifically the castle biosciences test Mm -hmm. in front of your patients when you have, you know, a smaller tumor or, you know, medium, I mean, you know, obviously it it would need to be biopsyable, um, for you to have this discussion, but, uh, how do you have that discussion with your patients as far as, you know, okay, this is, this is what you could do. This This is is what, what yeah. Like this is what the biopsy is and what do you want to do kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, you already said one thing, which is that it has to be biopsyable. Um, I like that word. <laughs> and it's true. Um, uh, you know, at some point, I hope all patients can be included because we'll have this liquid biopsy approach. But right now, I do have patients that have very small tumors, le- well less than two millimeters sitting right in their phobia. I'm not going to biopsy that because I don't think I'm going to get a good yield. My needle is about 1.7 millimeters. So um, if your tumor is less than two, you can imagine that um, it's very difficult to get a good yield and right next to those critical structures can cause more vision loss. So um, in general, I would say my tumors have to be above two before I biopsy them in general. Um, And I tell patients that it's information. So I say, this doesn't mean you're going to live, you're going to die. That's not what this test is. This test tells us does this tumor have a higher or a lower capacity for getting out of the eye and showing up somewhere in the body? And that by knowing that, we can direct the amount of imaging and the amount of screening and surveillance we do in the body. And I also tell them it's their choice. So I never mandate a biopsy. I think it's, for me, important that my patients understand it, understand what it can and cannot do. I also explain to them that it's not diagnosis. So sometimes they'll say, oh, did we get the form that says, um, you know, this is a melanoma? Of course you could do that, but I tend to make one pass and I make that pass for prognostication. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, I like, I'm glad we covered that because I didn't, I didn't think about until this end kind of point when you mentioned the biopsy and I'm like, oh yeah, like we should chat, we should chat about this. Um, and just as a kind of, by the way, like special thanks, if you're listening, special thanks to Castle Biosciences for sponsoring this podcast and for connecting us up with you, Dr. Barry, um, so that we could have this, this discussion. Um, so is there anything else that you want to say in closing as we kind of wrap up? Well, I want to thank everyone who joined. Um, You know, again, this is a rare disease and it's a small community, but there's so much advocacy out there around it and so much that can be done. And your support pushes things forward. So lobbying um, or getting the word out that we need research funding for even these rare tumors, you know, breakthroughs of the magnitude that are needed in this field um, are require big research grants and they require people that are dedicated to make it happen. Um, but the voices of the patients push it forward. So thank you to all of you for being interested, for showing up and for speaking loudly about the need for better treatment, better cures, better detection for ocular melanoma. I love it. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences 
please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.